0: as I reflect back on the question of whether there is a continuous theme in my work, I believe it might be trying to find the fixed in the changing. Now, social scientists are guilty of being fascinated with change and variation, but I think it's quite easy to point to change. It's quite easy to say how things now are different than they were before. The real challenge is to try to find continuities. And I think this was precisely what drove Clausewitz. Everyone was talking about how war changes with new new strategies, new technologies, new topographies. And he acknowledged all of that. He took very seriously the idea that war is changing. But he set out to find out what remains the same.
1: Welcome to S.C.A.S. Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Lea and in this episode I talk to Hassem Kandil, Cambridge University Professor of Historical and Political Sociology and Fellow of St. Catharina's College. He studies power relations in war, revolution and culture, focusing on America, Europe and the Middle East. He holds a PhD in Sociology from UCLA, and M.A. degrees in political theory and international relations. His publications include Power Triangle, Military, Security and Politics in Regime Change, Inside the Brotherhood and Soldiers, Spies and Statesmen. Hassem Kandil has previously been a Pro Futura Scientia Fellow and was in residence at SCAS in the academic year of 2019-2020. In this episode, we will learn more about his current book project with a working title On War in America. And this is the second episode on our theme, Diplomacy and International Relations. Welcome to Ska's Talks and to this distant recording. You are joining me from Cambridge today. So you're a professor of historical and political sociology, an intriguing title that at least I have not seen before. (laughs) So what does this mean? What do you do?
0: The borders between the various social science disciplines are notoriously porous, but what that title indicates is that I study topics that interest both sociologists and political scientists, and I do so most often by using the historical method.
1: Interesting, and we will hear a lot more about that today. So very broadly then, what is your research about?
0: I'm generally interested in in power relations, and this has fueled my interest in several different areas from military and security organizations to ideological movements. At present, however, my main concern is warfare. And the reason for that is the curious gap in our understanding of war, that war is social has become a truism, almost a cliche among social scientists. Yet in most social studies of warfare, war itself is treated as irrelevant. These studies discuss the causes of war, imperialism, economic exploitation, political miscalculation, failure in conflict resolution, belligerent ideologies or leaders. They also discuss the outcomes of war, death and destruction, immigration, trauma, facilitating revolution or consolidating authoritarianism, expanding citizenship rights, etc., but they all seem to ignore war itself, something better left to military historians to describe. However, I see war as an independent social universe that deserves to be studied in its own right. My current work therefore attempts to provide a sociology of war that does not treat war as an afterthought that goes beyond just saying that war is social.
1: That's very interesting. So Clausewitz is a central person in your research and also in your way of arguing. So maybe we should start with letting our listeners know a little bit more about Clausewitz. Who was Karl von Clausewitz, as his full name is? What should we know about him?
0: Karl von Clausewitz is a 19th century Prussian soldier and scholar. He's one of those people who are overcoated and overstudied, yet underutilized. He has been pigeonholed as a war theorist although his magnum opus, On War, which came out in 1831, constitutes about a third of his collected work, which includes other things such as historical research, cultural and political analysis, as well as very entertaining pen portraits and psychological insights. Studies of Clausewitz, therefore, have either been narrowly theoretical unpacking or nitpicking everything he said, or most commonly, he is used as garnish, with students of warfare summarizing his ideas in the introduction and then dropping his name almost haphazardly every now and then in the text. I would like to think that my work is thoroughly Klaus in the sense that his concepts are embedded in my explanations and his methods guide my research. To start with, Clausewitz was interested in tension, especially irresolvable tension. For instance, the tension between reason, passion, and chance during war. What happens when the rational, the irrational, and the non-rational interact? Also the tension between the political, military, and popular logics that drive warfare logics that often fail to add up. A third example is the unexpected glitches that characterize the conduct of war, what he calls friction. In all these cases, his goal is to highlight the paradoxes that riddle warfare rather than offer facile prescriptions that would make them disappear. The second way my work is influenced by Clausewitz is methodological. He distinguishes between two forms of history. One tells the readers what happened in the past, and the other allows them to experience it for themselves. And obviously he preferred the second, the reenactment of events, simulating reality to stimulate the reader. A war narrative, in his view, should be immersive, evocative, fast-paced, and intense, to imitate actual events. And to be true to reality, the narrative cannot be one-sided. Nothing was more important to Clausewitz than empathy. A researcher must be able to internalize the logic of all the actors involved and then reproduce it faithfully to readers. Clausewitz's goal was never to identify villains or to assign blame. He simply wanted to understand why people acted the way they did.
1: Very interesting approach. And as you say, people are still referring to Clausewitz and using the same method. So that's very exciting. I got to read one of your texts and there you write, war always seems a step ahead. Can you say something more about that?
0: One of the really important debates about warfare is whether war has a fixed nature and only changes its outside character, or whether war essentially is changeable. Now, Clausewitz says that war is a true chameleon, by which he indicated that its appearance can change, but its essence remains the same. There has been endless attempts in various human societies to control war in different ways, but it always appears to be much too volatile, and throws up unexpected reactions to people's attempts to tame it and to use it as a mere instrument. Let's
1: talk about your current book project then. You're working on a book with a working title, On War in America. So can you tell us more about this book?
0: The book is about how America tries to tame war and how war pushes back. The United States emerged from the Second World War with a margin of military superiority never seen before in history. It is inconceivable for it to disregard the use of force as a foreign policy tool. And indeed, before embarking on any military campaign, the three social groups that Clausewitz thought were crucial offer their blessing. The politicians are obviously happy, to add violence to their arsenal of tools rather than be limited to diplomacy or economic pressures. Soldiers are trained and equipped for war so they naturally go along. And popular opinion is not averse to a show of force for a worthy cause, as long as it would not cost them much in blood or treasure. And this last expectation is where the social consensus begins to unravel. War is inherently volatile, as Clausewitz tells us, it tends to spin out of control. And when this happens, public support collapses, politicians pull the plug, and soldiers are left feeling betrayed. But then America tries again and again and again. And I ask myself, why do they persist in this vicious circle? And the answer is quite simple. Political leaders believe that this time, it will be different, that America will prevail, with relative ease. Why do they think so? Well, the answer begins again with technology. Every new cycle starts with the invention of a new military technology, which in turn inspires a new military doctrine. And it is indeed successful when applied in a limited operation, but then falls apart when applied more widely. In this book project, I identify three such cycles from Jack Kennedy to Joe Biden. And these cycles form the empirical core of the book.
1: So what are these three cycles? Can you tell us a little bit more about them?
0: Well, the first begins with nuclear technology, the cycle that I refer to as war's chess. The thing about nuclear technology is that it's not meant to be used. It is a deterrent that would make sure that any military operations would remain limited by definition. It cannot be escalated. And the goal of winning a nuclear war is to be able to ring your enemy with delivery methods from satellite states to ballistic missiles to nuclear submarines while your enemy's trying to do the same. So the entire world seems like a big chessboard and you're trying to move over one square to the other and your enemy's trying to do the same. Now, in this type of shadow boxing, there might be some limited violent confrontations But these would remain within boundaries. I use here the Cuban Missile Crisis as the archetypical example of that. A military confrontation in which a lot has been achieved during a very tense time, but with very little casualties. We have only one American casualty for the entirety of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And believe it or not, when the U.S. was thinking about Vietnam, they thought about something quite similar just an attempt to check the advances by the communist powers, like they did in Berlin, like they did in Korea. It's supposed to be a stalemate, a cold border with two parties staring at each other. But, of course, war proves to be unpredictable. And then Vietnam happens and and half a million soldiers are sucked in, a tenth of whom are killed. Billions of dollars go down the drain. So then we start this other cycle, which I refer to as war surgery, what the Americans call the revolution in military affairs. Precision missiles delivered in a stealthy mode that is supposed to surgically remove the centers of power of your enemy, forcing them to throw in the towel with a very short, limited confrontation. It was applied successfully in the Gulf War in 1991, It was famously a 44-day war that only included 100 hours of ground warfare, and Americans seem to be very excited that the war surgery is the way of the future. It is tried again in a number of cases, most famously in the second Iraq war, and again war proves to be one step ahead, and America ends up facing very unexpected challenges, challenges that cannot be dealt with through these great technologies. And so this lays the ground for the third cycle, which I describe as war, as assassination. So here America abolishes the battlefield and lines up its enemies as high value targets and uses these new special operations technologies, drones and special operation aviation and gadgets to take out its enemies. And of course, the war against Al-Qaeda and the assassination of bin Laden was a place where this New doctrine was used very successfully. But then ISIS consolidates power over large patches of Syria and Iraq. And the U.S. discovers that, well, drones and special operations are not going to be sufficient in rolling back a state with the size of ISIS. And so, you know, we are still at the point where we are the third cycle. There are some questions about it. And I think the Ukraine also underlies these questions, and the future is as ever open.
1: Yeah, so since you mentioned Ukraine, so currently we see a war very close to us. How does this war then relate to what you're describing here or in your book?
0: In this latest cycle of American military doctrine, there is this high reliance on drones and special operations, and... These are very effective in fighting a network that is spread all over the globe. But the question is what happens when America faces an opponent that requires a massive conventional effort? As I said, in the case of ISIS, drones and special ops could not do the job. But luckily for the US, there were several armed forces that were willing to do the heavy lifting from Russia, Iran, Syria, Iraq, to Kurdish and Lebanese militia. Now, again, in the Ukraine, The U.S. was lucky not to have to mobilize NATO troops to reverse the Russian occupation because the Ukrainian army was willing to step up, allowing Washington to remain a supplier of weapons and battlefield advice. But the question remains, what happens when there is no one around to carry the burden? What happens when America finds itself stuck in a conventional fight? That remains to be seen.
1: So can that be the next cycle?
0: Well, when the war in the Ukraine started, I thought that America would become more alert to the importance of contemplating uh, conventional battles in the future once more. But very unexpectedly for me, and, and I think many of us, the Ukrainian army has been offering a very solid resistance that has not forced America to ask these difficult questions, The special operators on the ground offering advice to the Ukrainian army. They have been for years. The tactical drones that are being used in the battlefield to great effect against Russian armored columns and tanks. They have not forced America to face these difficult questions about the future. Taiwan is another interesting example. Will that compel the U.S. to consider more larger extended battlefields or not? It remains to be seen as well.
1: We keep our fingers crossed. European countries are also sending supplies and, as you say, advice, but there are no troops yet going there, so we see. I have another question about your book. Once it's out there, once it's finished and printed and out for sale, who do you want to reach and what are you hoping to achieve through your book?
0: This book is written for a wider audience. The goal is not to identify those responsible for war. It is not necessarily to argue against ever having to go to war. The main objective is to present the readers with what war is really like, is to allow readers to experience for themselves the complexity and the volatility Of warfare, so that when they do choose to support leaders that want to engage in warfare, they would be quite conscious of what that choice entails. The unpredictability, the almost impossibility to calculate the length and the cost of a military campaign. So I would want the reader to read the book and come out saying, okay, well, this is war. Now I know what it's like. And obviously in doing so, I'm again following Clausewitz. And in his writings were largely about allowing people to understand what war was really like. So they would take it seriously and consider matters of war and peace in a grave, but also a realistic way.
1: I think that's a very good approach to, as you say, paint this picture of what it can be like and what it actually means to go to war. So I think everybody has quite a, well, first and foremost, different (laughs) idea. And then also maybe very unrealistic or very diffuse picture. At least I do.
0: One thing you should get rid of when you're thinking about warfare is optimism. Optimism is always quite dangerous when you deal with something as in flux as warfare.
1: So avoiding war at all costs, is that a better thought or more realistic?
0: I mean, I think that the necessary first step to consider whether war would remain part of human history is to understand what war is really like. Now, it is not my place to then recommend what to do with that knowledge. My job is to try to relay that knowledge as accurately as possible. And it is for people to decide whether they want to continue to engage in warfare or to try to go beyond that.
1: As I said in the introduction, you have previously written other books, also on war, on quite different wars in the world. Maybe we can start with a brief introduction. What are your other books about?
0: Well, I published three books before. The first and the third ones are about power relations amongst military security and political institutions. Obviously, warfare, but also revolution and domestic turmoil. Are important part of that. My purpose in these books, which cover the cases of Egypt, Turkey, and Iran, is to understand how these three institutions of the state collaborate and compete over power and how their power struggles shape regimes over time. My second book was called Inside the Brotherhood. It was about the Islamist movement known as the Muslim Brotherhood, and it was slightly different than my other works. It was an ethnography, a study of a movement from the inside at a time when almost every book about Islamist movements focused on the relationship between these movements and external actors, how they relate to the state or to the economy, or to culture, society, or to international actors. My book was about relations within the organization. And again, power relations within the organization. How members are recruited, indoctrinated, promoted, elevated, discarded, and what happens within.
1: Is there a general theme in your books? What is continuous in your research and also in your writing?
0: I didn't have that idea to start with, but as I reflect back on the question of whether there is a continuous theme in my work, I believe it might be trying to find the fixed in the changing. Now, social scientists are guilty of being fascinated with change and variation, but I think it's quite easy to point to change. It's quite easy to say, how things now are different than they were before. The real challenge is to try to find continuities. And I think this was precisely what drove Clausewitz. Everyone was talking about how war changes with new new strategies, new technologies, new topographies. And he acknowledged all of that. He took very seriously the idea that war is changing, but he set out to find out what remains the same. And so, you know, just the latest example I mentioned about my second book about the Muslim Brotherhood. There has been a plethora of studies about how the Muslim Brotherhood has changed over time. It's been around for decades. But what motivated my work is what has remained the same in the organization from its conception until the present time. Now, similarly with warfare and American warfare, America is a very changeable and dynamic country. It's very technologically driven. Its campaigns are quite different in every way. What really motivates me is to find out what remains the same despite all of these changes. Is there a common thread, a pattern that I can identify and follow? I think this is what drives most of my intellectual projects.
1: In the beginning, you mentioned something about Clausewitz methods and also your own. So I thought maybe we can talk a little bit more about that and how you actually go about doing your research. So if I've understood it correctly, you use narratives. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? How do you do?
0: Historical sociologists typically set out to explain why things happen. They're interested in causality and they achieve this by identifying some abstract variable that causes things to happen. Class struggle, some new ideology, the state, geopolitics. Individuals seem to be carried away by these powerful currents. In their defense, Sociologists recognize that reality is more complicated than that, but they argue that we must simplify reality in order to study it. My view is that we should embrace that complexity. We should develop more sensitive tools to analyze social behaviors. To do so, we need to shift from why things happen to how they happen. We need to remain as close as possible to practical logic, to concrete actions. Instead of projecting our concepts onto people, we ought to observe how they actually behave. So, when it comes to the concept of power, which is so central to my work, I do not bother with defining power, let alone fitting people into my model. I begin instead by examining how individuals engaged in real life situations understand and apply power. This means trying to construct narratives that capture how power relations unfold from the viewpoint of social actors, rather than narratives that rotate around an abstract view of power supplied by the scholar.
1: In the previous episode, I talked to Lisa Hellman, a historian who has a strong interest in global history, and she uses micro histories and biographical approaches in her studies. That sounds a little bit similar or something that you also do?
0: The narratives that I'm attempting are trying to capture people's voices. Now, those people might be part of what we mostly think about as these macro institutions. So, you know, the political institutions in the U.S., for instance, you know, the White House, National Security Council, the Congress, but also the armed forces of the United States, the various services and what we think about as popular opinion. And all of these things seem quite macro. However, the way I approach them is to try to capture the voices of the individuals at the various ranks of those macro structures And try to come as close as possible to how they were thinking, how they tried to articulate their interests, how they defined their sense of what needs to be done, and how they set about trying to do it. So it can be perhaps perceived as a macro-sociological study that is embedded with these micro-narratives within.
1: In one of your texts... You write, a Clausewitzian narrative is an exercise in historical reenactment. It sounds like your approach is very much like that.
0: I mean, I follow Clausewitz in the sense that for readers to be able to understand what actually happened in history, they need to gain a sensibility, a sensibility of what it was like to be there. And the only possible way of achieving that is to try to reenact past events, as they appeared from the viewpoint of the various social actors. So that reader doesn't come out thinking, well, if they had only acted this way, if they only, you know, made the right decision. The reader needs to understand that in the flux of events, in the confusion and the chaos on social life, the actors could have only acted the way that they did.
1: Coming back to empathy there, that you understand why people do what they do.
0: And it's quite important that empathy is not confused with sympathy. It is not in any way an attempt to understand why people acted the way they do to forgive them or sympathize with them. It is simply an intellectual requirement of being able to understand what the past was really like, is just to see it from the viewpoint Of those that were involved in it whether you ultimately agree or excuse that behavior or not
1: so you have been a pro futura fellow and you were in residence at SCAS in the academic year of 2019-2020 so first of all what was your experience of the multi-interdisciplinary environment here at the collegium
0: it was a great privilege. Few institutions understand what it takes to inspire intellectual vigor than SCAS. And the place and the people were simply marvelous and the mechanisms they set in place for all this interdisciplinary discussions to happen in an informal but in a sustained and deep manner over a number of months. It was simply brilliantly, you know, conceived. And I found it extremely beneficial for my work.
1: How was your work influenced by the stay here in Uppsala?
0: Certainly, in so many different ways. So the discussions I had with people over lunches and the various excursions and and, the social events that we organized was incredibly useful. I talked to people who were in English literature about narrative and storytelling, which was very important. Talked to a few people who knew a lot about Clausewitz. Talked to some who studied you know, the natural sciences and would help me think about things like how soldiers' physical environment affects their thought processes. But also, it was very intriguing to understand how other people approach their work in terms of their writing habits, their reading habits. How do they deal with blockage in terms of writing or in terms of cracking a certain difficult concept. It's always fascinating to see how other people face very similar challenges and pick up a few lessons that can be useful going forward.
1: But then you've also had this Pro Futura Fellowship and you have completed it, if I've understood it correctly, you moved on from that. What influence has that fellowship had on your academic career?
0: I think the fellowship program, which lasted for three years, was absolutely essential in giving me the time to work on my current book project. Now, this book project is particularly difficult because it's particularly long. So this is meant to be a big book. And it would have been extremely daunting to try to do the research, which included a lot of traveling, archival work, interviews, sifting through documents, but also get a big chunk of the manuscript written whilst I was in Cambridge performing my teaching and administrative duties. So I would certainly say that without this fellowship, this book would have not been written.
1: Thank you for joining me on this distant call and our listeners in this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. We have heard Hassam Kandil, Cambridge University Professor of Historical and Political Sociology and Fellow of St. Catharina's College, who told us more about his ongoing book project On War in America. And this was the second episode in our theme Diplomacy and International Relations. The previous episode within this theme featured Lisa Hellman, researcher in history at Lund University, and we heard more about some of her research exploring the process of early modern globalization. And this was episode 45. The list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing, reflecting the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS. We started off in the summer of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and went on to feature the study of languages, diversity, global governance the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures in Asia, citizen and state relations. We're sure that there's something of interest for everyone. Find your favorite topic or surprise yourself with something new. As always, we're very happy if you can recommend SCUS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. Scass Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Hassam Kanil once again for joining me and thanks to you for listening. Bye for now.